So I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, to the eighth chapter. We're going to pick it up at verse 27. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. Jesus and his disciples, Mark writes, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So today is the second Sunday in the season called Lent. And this year we're looking at the gospel according to Peter. You see, the gospel of Mark, from which we read, is the very first gospel that was ever written. The gospel of Mark is based on Peter's apostleship, on his commitment to his rabbi, on his faith in Jesus Christ, and his testimony that Jesus is Lord. Mark writes his gospel based on the teaching and the preaching of Peter. So when Peter went to Rome... Mark came along, served as his personal companion and his, his private secretary. And after Peter's death, Mark left and went to Alexandria, to Egypt, and he became the church's first bishop. Before Mark, no one had ever written a gospel. After Mark's gospel, other writers would also write gospels, and those gospels would become foundational. They would become formative in defining and living out the Christian life. Gospel. Gospel is a story that invites us into a world other than and larger than ourselves, into a world of creation and salvation and blessing, a world of transformation and awe gospel is an incarnational story, a flesh and blood, earthly, blunt, if you will, on the ground story, a Peter-like story, a story that is worked out in time and in space and in actual lives of people. The gospel 
is a story where we can clearly see how God is at work in the everydayness of history. So line after line, page after page, this gospel is the story about Jesus, about life and Jesus, about life with Jesus, about life in Jesus, 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 and Jesus, all about Jesus. The gospel and Christianity are built on the person and work of Jesus Christ and of our relationship with him. So we call ourselves Christians. We identify ourselves as Christians. But the question I want to think about, at least for a few moments this morning, is how much do we actually talk about Jesus? How much do we think about Jesus? I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Time did an extensive interview with 20 large megachurch pastors across the United States, interviewed them extensively, and out of all those interviews that they recorded, only one, only one out of the 20 talked about Jesus. In our leadership meetings, we talk about buildings and budgets and programs and ministries. In the foyer, we'll talk about our worship experience and the preaching and yesterday's ball game. At home, we talk about school and work. We talk about what we're going to eat and what we are eating and about what we're going to do for this coming weekend. We talk about almost everything except for Jesus. It seems like the only time we may talk about Jesus or use his name is when we conclude our prayers. But our text wants to bring us back to remind us of the priority and the centrality of Jesus Christ in all of life, not just in our spiritual life, but in all of our life. Something I think is sadly missing in our North American context among a lot of believers, and sadly even in many of our churches. And so in this series, we are immersing ourselves in the company of Peter as a way to embrace and talk more about Jesus and the word in the flesh. These disciples walk with Jesus for three years. And the wonderful thing about walking, especially when you go with others, is you go slowly. There is time for conversation. There is time for observation. There is time for reflection. Questions are asked and answers are provided. Topics are discussed. There's time to think things through. Strangers are encountered and neighbors are made. And they walked, these disciples walked with Jesus. And so as a result, there is no doubt in any of their minds that Jesus was human and Jesus was in all ways just like they were, at least the ways that they could see. Today, we are in a hurry. And the sad thing about being in a hurry is we often miss Jesus. The price on our soul for our busyness has been rather devastating to know Jesus, to really know him, we have to learn to walk with him and walk slowly. We need a Jesus-focused life like the disciples had. 
so they can understand that every truth to become truth needs to be lived out, lived out in our churches and in our homes and in our schools and in our businesses and out in the marketplace day in and day out, or it isn't really our faith. You see, all living is local. It's in the here and now. It's in this land. It's in this neighborhood. It's in our workplace. It's among our people. Jesus needs to be part of our everyday life, not something reserved for Sunday or for our religious time. But every day is part of our walking and sometimes even our running and our sitting and our standing. So this passage takes place at a place called Caesarea Philippi. It marks the watershed in Mark's gospel. You see, it is the outcome of what has gone before in the first eight chapters. It is the foundation for what is going to follow in the next eight chapters. The first half of Mark's gospel has been filled with the mighty works of Jesus that validate him, that put a foundation under him, that he is Messiah. And this transactional passage, this transitional passage placed here, moves us from doctrine to practice, from observation to participation, from confession to commitment the transition, the transformation that every follower needs to make to disciple. So here we are. The shadow of the cross now begins to fall among the remaining pages of this gospel. The blinders will be lifted off the disciples and they will see Jesus for who Jesus really is. And Mark writes, Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Wow. Jesus is leading his 12 followers north of the Sea of Galilee. They walk for 25 miles through a number of villages until they come to this place, Caesarea Philippi. It is the capital of Herod Philip's tetrarchy which he named after himself and after Caesar Augustus, Caesar who claimed to be Lord and Savior and a son of God. <laughs> no ego issues here. Caesarea Philippi lay at the foot of Mount Hermon. You can see it on the map. Near an Old Testament city that we know as the city of Dan. Caesarea Philippi was built at the base of a cliff. It is centered around a large cave from which, at the time before the, a major earthquake, from which a huge river flowed, a spring. It is a place of absolute beauty. And Jesus brings his disciples here to Caesarea Philippi. And his disciples would have been absolutely shocked. It would have been their parents' worst nightmare. It would be like, like Trey taking his men's Bible study group to Mardi Gras. Just an FYI, he's not doing that. 
It's not happening. Don't call Preston. Just an illustration. But that's what's going on here. The city and the pagan religious practices were well known. And they are vastly different from what was going on in Galilee and from what these Jewish disciples of Jesus knew. They're in their mid-teens. They've never experienced anything like this before. See, back in the Old Testament, the Israelite king Jeroboam had turned this whole area into a center of Baal worship. He built a high place that angered God. He led the Israelites to worship false gods, and they called the place Belenus. Eventually, the worship of Baal gave way to the worship of Pan. The worship of a Canaanite god gave way to the worship of a Greek god, both fertility gods. And so the city was renamed Panius in Pan's honor. The pagans believed their gods lived in the underworld during the winter And they returned to earth each spring when the weather got nice. They traveled in and out of this inner earth through the caves and through water. This cave opening, this spring here at Caesarea Philippi was considered to be the gate to the underworld. And so this place was known as the gate of Hades or the gate of hell. On the cliff above the city, on the sides of Mount Hermon, over 20 temples have been excavated. To welcome the return of their god Pan each spring, the people around Caesarea Philippi celebrated with a week-long feast that promoted prostitution and sex between humans and goats. The god Pan, when they pictured him, had the torso of a man and the hindquarters of a goat in order to illustrate the close physical proximity between the two. So Caesarea Philippi is literally knocking on the gates of hell. It was a red light district, we might say. And a devout Jew would never, ever enter this city. Except where the rabbi goes. Disciples follow, and it's Jesus who takes his disciples here. In this thoroughly pagan place, Jesus asks the eternal question, who do people say I am? Now imagine this as an ongoing conversation among the disciples I mean, if you and I are simply reading this as we just did, it takes about 30 seconds. So most of us picture a very short, pithy conversation. I tend to see this as more of an extended conversation over a slow walk. Mark provides us here, if you will, with the cliff notes. Well, some say John the Baptist. Really? Why would you think they would say John the Baptist? Well, you know, you're both out there preaching the gospel of repentance. You're like John. You know, John risen from the dead. Interesting. 
Anybody hear anything else? Well, you know, some, some are saying that you're Elijah the prophet. Because Elijah the prophet said he would come before that great and terrible day. And the great and terrible day is coming, especially if the Romans persist. In Orthodox Judaism, a chair was set out for Elijah at every single Passover celebration. And they expected him someday to come and to fill that chair. So they're saying, maybe you're Elijah. Maybe you have returned. We've heard others say, maybe you're one of the prophets. You know, like Jeremiah or Isaiah. So people have been saying these kinds of things for some time. And they're talking and they're walking. Now understand, in this occasion, the disciples are simply relaying what they understand to be the crowd's perception. This is what the crowd thinks Jesus is. And not much has changed for the crowd. And yet at the same time, the crowd seems to hold Jesus in rather high esteem to be known as one of the prophets. That was pretty good. It was a high honor. The problem was they saw Jesus as a word, not as the word or the final word. So after three years of knowing and listening to Jesus, the crowd still don't really have an inkling of who he really is. But who the crowd says Jesus is really isn't the issue, really isn't the point of Jesus' initial question. Because for the disciples, these first answers are, these are the easy ones. I mean, they're purely, purely descriptive. They can just say what other people are saying. They require little thought. There is no risk. There is no commitment. There is just an information exchange. A lot of people, even today, a lot of people recognize that Jesus was a good man. He was a wonderful teacher. Had some great things to say. He was a, a person, a man to be modeled after. But now Jesus gets to his point and he raises the bar for his disciples and he says, who do you say? Who do you say I am? Surrounded by all these pagan temples. Within view and within listening distance of all these people that have come to celebrate all kinds of pagan things. Jesus is asking the fundamental question of life and death. Who do you say I am? If they answer John or they say Elijah, or perhaps they would say one of the prophets, well, the truth is life is going to remain pretty simple. It's going to remain fairly the same. Prophets, everybody knows, are just ordinary people that God has tapped on the shoulder. Listeners can decide about their ongoing relationship with that prophet. They can choose whether they're going to listen to that prophet they can choose how they're going to respond to that prophet. They can choose. That's an option. People do that all the time today with leaders, employers, and preachers. But if they answer Messiah, their life will be turned upside down. If you say Messiah, Hebrew, or if you say Christ, Greek, that's the equivalent of saying Jesus is the son of God. He is God's anointed ruler. That statement, that admission leaves only one response. 
obedience. If Jesus is Messiah, he cannot be ignored. Everything changes. You see, you cannot say Lord and no in the same sentence. The contrast, contrast is stark. The contrast is unavoidable. Disciples, you have a choice. There is this or there is this. It's not something in between. You can either choose Jesus, the living God, in the flesh, walking and talking among you, or you can choose dead gods, these pagan gods, this world and all it pretends to offer. You choose. Choose carefully. Again, and I think this is also a Cliff's Notes summary, if you will. This is a big question. And I think the disciples knew it. When you get a big question, you pause. You, th you think about the answer. You think you might know it, but... But maybe you're only 99% sure. You're not 100% sure yet. And you don't want to look foolish. So you just sort of bow your head and remain quiet and hope nobody calls on you specifically. You see, up until this point, Jesus has never identified himself as Messiah. His disciples have been walking with him. They have watched him closely <laughs> And the truth is, it seems to me, reading it and rereading it, they have missed some very powerful hints along the way. In Mark 4, Jesus stills the storm. And the disciples ask, Who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey his voice? Let me give you a hint. Only God can do that. Mark 5, Jesus raises this young girl from the dead. They were completely astonished, the scripture says. Who can raise people from the dead? Let me give you a hint. Only God can do that. In Mark 6 and in Mark 8, Jesus provides bread for thousands. Who ultimately provides bread? Here's a hint. Only God can provide the bread that satisfies. In Mark 7, Jesus walks on water. They were completely amazed, the scripture says. I mean, who walks on water? And the truth should be so obvious. Only God can do that. Now, these are disciples. These are Jewish disciples. They have been born and raised in Judaism. They know the scriptures, the Old Testament, inside and out. And they know when lame walk and when the deaf hear and when the blind see and when prisoners are free, they are in the room with God, with Jesus, with Messiah. And then a fisherman, a fisherman breaks the silence with a declaration of faith. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. You see, Messiah, Christ, is not his name. His name is Jesus. Christ is his title. It is his office. It is his work. Christ literally means the anointed one. 
Jesus is the incarnation of the Godhead. He is the creator in perfect form. He reflects the the custom of the pouring of oil over the head of a priest and a prophet and a king to symbolize God's call on him. This fisherman was named Peter. And he, he answers with the four words of gospel. You are the Christ. Peter is the first to publicly confess that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the promised one who will rule over all the nations. To embrace gospel, we need to acknowledge it. This is a significant breakthrough in the middle of this gospel. They now understand who Messiah is, even if at this point they don't fully grasp what the implications of that confession might be. In the healing of the blind man outside Bethsaida in the previous verses, in Mark 22 to 26, Jesus uses a two-step, two-touch approach. I think Mark plants that right there in that context because he wants us to understand that this, this testimony, this statement from Peter is the first touch in following Jesus. In understanding who Messiah is, we must confess that Jesus is the Christ He is the son of God. And then the second step must quickly follow. Here in this thoroughly pagan place where Pan is considered God and Caesar is said to be Lord, Jesus asks his disciples to commit their lives to him. When Matthew tells the story in Matthew 16, he emphasizes that this is the foundation of the church. And it's given so that the world, that the church can overcome the world's worst evils. But here in Mark 8, and in the parallel passage in Luke 9, the emphasis that those authors have is in building disciples. Disciples who recognize who Jesus is. And disciples who are willing to follow him with their whole heart. And those gospel authors want us to understand that it's disciples that make the church. So in a city filled with false gods and pagan distinctions, distractions, excuse me, Jesus asks his followers to commit to him, the one true God. While false gods are all promising prosperity and happiness, they never actually deliver. Jesus, it's interesting, never promises prosperity. He promises salvation. Redemption, new life. And he reminds us that that's all that really matters. So at this point, after that wonderful testimony, you would think that Jesus would congratulate his disciples. (laughs) Well done, gentlemen. Finally, after all this time, you finally get it right. But instead, Jesus charges his disciples. The scripture word actually means rebukes his disciples to tell nobody. What? You have this wonderful testimony. You finally got it right. Now, don't say anything. Why not send them out into the countryside? Wouldn't this be a great time? They're all excited. They finally understand who Jesus is. Jesus has said, yes, I am Messiah. Because they only have the first step. 
The first step of a discipleship is confession. The second step is commitment. And they haven't kept one commitment yet. They haven't done anything. I find it really hard to watch people who say they believe in Jesus Christ and then live their life like they don't know Jesus at all. It taints the witness. So Jesus here appears to be somewhat concerned because at this point they still understand what they have said rather dimly and they don't quite understand what following Jesus is going to mean for their life. They'll learn. So even though they, and in this case, Peter, their leader, has correctly identified Jesus as Messiah, they have not yet followed him as their Lord. And Mark will have us understand that that means they have not yet suffered for him. The Jews understood the title Messiah as the highest political office in Judaism. They had been taught in a time of terrible tribulation that Elijah would return and he would announce Messiah's coming and Messiah would come and he would defeat their enemies and he would restore Israel to glory and Jerusalem would be the center and the capital of the world. That's what they understood. And that's what the disciples had learned growing up. That's what they pictured Jesus, Messiah, as, as doing. He would put some distance between himself and that politically loaded title. And they wouldn't yet understand. It's a sad day when politics in our world become intertwined with the coming of God's kingdom. But it happens. And Jesus begins the task immediately and in earnest, actually in the very next verse. Here's the second touch. It's necessary to understand what following Messiah really means. And so Jesus paints a clear picture. They need to know the whole story, if you will, before they can tell others. They have been awed by his power. They have been fascinated by his teaching. They have been overwhelmed by his compassion and his healing, but they still don't get it. Not yet. And it doesn't become gospel doesn't become good news for us until we do. See, Jesus, the Messiah, is not going to take up a crown. Jesus, Messiah, is going to take up a cross. So Jesus wastes no time in adding to their confession. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. It's not the way they envisioned this was going to go. But this isn't going their way. It's going God's way. It's going in God's time. How often don't we long to redesign God and discipleship? but it's not about us. And then Jesus gets to the bottom line. 
He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. That's discipleship. Knowing the cross. Will you follow Jesus? Will you drink from the cup? Will you go and fish for people? Will you let your light shine? Jesus knows what's ahead for his disciples. They will face ridicule and hostility and persecution, even death as they identify with Jesus. They will be confronted by evil, by the worst that the world has to offer. The pressure to conform to their, the world's standards will be intense. What they and the disciples who follow them will face will require a deep commitment to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to lean on his divine strength, and to live a holy life. But as Jesus knows, if they can make their public profession and commitment right here in the middle of Caesarea Philippi, where evil is pervasive and intensive and in their face, they will be able to do it anywhere and everywhere. Jesus says, whoever comes with me must let me lead. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. A life without sacrifice is not a Christ-like life. You must follow in my footsteps. Even, even especially when it leads to a cross. What good is it for someone, Jesus says, to gain the whole world and at the same time to lose their soul? In a world that embraces moral diversity and requires political uniformity, it is considered to be offensive to suggest, to practice, to teach, or to preach that certain truths are timeless and unchanging. Obedient disciples of Jesus are often labeled as myopic, homophobic, hypocritical, paranoid, and intolerant for refusing to accept and adopt to the times and the standards to the behaviors of our culture. Sadly, many have embraced a distorted Christianity that tries to be politically correct. So as not to offend anyone, many suggest tolerating sin and affirming disobedience rather than living counterculturally. Christians often talk about love, but love ultimately rings empty when we also tolerate sin and falsehoods that, that ruin people's lives and their eternal destinies. Other Christians simply try to avoid the world and culture altogether. They seclude in their churches and in their schools and homes, and they try to shut the door on evil influences in their society and culture. But Jesus offers a third option. He says we're to go, and we're to boldly proclaim the truth with courage. Our churches, our schools, and our homes are to be staging areas rather than fortresses. We need places that equip people to engage the world instead of hiding from it to be in the world but not be overcome by it, as Jesus illustrates by taking his whole crew of disciples into Caesarea Philippi. Jesus knows that the pagan world is going to resist, but he challenges us to go there anyway, to the very places that are experiencing moral and ethical decay, to the Caesarea Philippi's of our day. Hmm. 
I wonder where the Caesarea Philippi's of our day are. When people talk about Christianity, they love to diffuse any conversations that we might have by talking about how Christians have really messed up. And we haven't been the kind of people that we profess to be. And the truth is, many of the things they raise are not insignificant. Christianity doesn't stand or fall on whether the Spanish Inquisition, for example, was right or wrong. Christianity stands or falls on whether Jesus Christ is who he said he is, whether he's Messiah or whether he's not. That's the gospel. And then Christians are supposed to do what Christians are supposed to do. Christianity's credibility rests on Christ's disciples confirming his claims and living under his lordship. It stands on our loving God and our neighbor with our whole heart. Christianity is calling us from mere confession to full commitment of our lives lived here in the nitty-gritty in this neighborhood, on this land, in the places where God calls us with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Christianity requires that we make these four words of gospel the center of our life. He is the Christ. So what's your answer to Jesus' question? Who do you say that Jesus is? Do people know your answer? Even before they ask? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Father, we profess to be followers of Jesus. We identify with Jesus. We're here this morning to say thank you to Jesus and to celebrate his life. May we be the kind of people that give evidence of Jesus in everything we do. May we follow him in his footsteps, so that his dust rubs off on us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.